Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. I thought we would continue our discussion of The Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, but with a focus on the idea of free will. Because we talked about free will with respect to Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, but some different issues are raised with regard to Aldous Huxley's free will concepts. The to start off, let's let's think and let's review a little bit about what we read with Aldous Huxley, which is they have a in the Brave New World they have a society that's got various stratifications, the epsilons, the betas, the alphas, and that these people are genetically cloned, so they have a very similar genetic structure. And then when they're raised from the embryos, they're given certain conditioning, chemical treatments, electrical treatments, various things to sort of make the uh, the people when they grow out, you know, grow up from embryos into real people, to make them have certain capabilities. So, for example, the epsilons aren't very smart. Their their brain functions have been retarded, not just genetically, but also with regard to uh, the use of chemical treatments while they were growing. And then we have the the betas and the alphas being able to to do more. And the idea being is that each person should have a, a, a level in the society that they are t- associated with and be happy with that level. Now, do you remember the experiment? Let's actually go to the experiment that was tried. This is on page 222 in The Brave New World, and this is in chapter 16. And it's a few pages in. Uh, Let me see. For those of you who have a different edition, 222 is sort of in the middle of 16. And we'll start with Savage saying the words, I was wondering, said the Savage. You see that? I was wondering, said that. You found that? Okay. And this is Mustafa Mond and John Savage talking. And they're talking about why the... He, Mustafa Mond is trying to explain why, why the society is structured the way it is, why it's leveled in various strata, and so on. I was wondering, said the savage, why you had them all, why you had them at all, seeing that you can get whatever you want out of those bottles, why don't you make everybody an alpha, double plus, while you're about it? So, he's referring back to the Bokanovsky groups of society where they have everybody separated into stratas and they... Savage is just saying, why don't you must make everybody at the top? Why don't you make them all alphas? 
Why have epsilons? Why have betas? Well, Mustafa Man laughed. Because we have no wish to have our throats cut, he answered. We believe in happiness and stability. A society of alphas couldn't fail to be unstable and miserable. Imagine a factory staffed by alphas, that is to say, by separate and unrelated individuals of good heredity and conditioned so as to be capable within limits <coughs> of making a free choice and assuming responsibilities. Imagine it, he repeated. The savage tried to imagine it, not very successfully. It's an absurdity. An alpha decanted, alpha conditioned man would go mad if he had to do epsilon semi-moron work. Go mad or start smashing things up. Alphas can be completely socialized, but only on condition that you make them do alpha work. Only an epsilon can be expected to make epsilon sacrifices. For the good reason that for him, they aren't sacrifices. They're the line of least resistance. His conditioning has laid down rails along which he's got to run. He can't help himself, he's foredoomed. Even after decanting, he's still inside a bottle, an invisible bottle and infantile and embryonic fixations. Each one of us, of course, the controller meditatively continued, goes through life inside a bottle. But if we happen to be alphas, our bottles are, relatively speaking, enormous. We should suffer acutely if we were confined in a narrower space. You cannot put poor upper-caste champagne surrogate into lower-caste bottles. It's obviously, it's obvious theoretically, but it has also been proved in actual practice. The result of the Cypress experiment was convincing. What was that? asked the savage. Mustafa Man smiled. Well, you can call it an experiment in rebottling, if you like. It began in AF in the year AF 473. The controllers had the island of Cyprus cleared of all its existing inhabitants and recolonized with a specially prepared batch of 22,000 alphas. All agricultural and industrial equipment was handed over to them and they were left to manage their own affairs. The result exactly fulfilled all the theoretical predictions. The land wasn't properly worked. There were strikes in all the factories. The laws were set at naught. Orders disobeyed. All of the people detailed for a spell of low-grade work were perpetually intriguing for high-grade jobs. And all the people with high-grade jobs were counter-intriguing at all costs to stay where they were. Within six years, they were having a first-class civil war. When 19 out of the 22,000 had been killed, the survivors unanimously petitioned the world controllers to resume the government of the island, which they did. And that was the end of the only society of alphas the world has ever seen. Savage sighed profoundly. The optimum population, said Mustafa Mond, is modeled on the iceberg. Eight-tenths below the waterline, one-ninth above.
Well, how would you relate that to some of the societies that you find here? Some of the things that you see here, even in the United States. What really stuck with me and what we just read was the life inside a bottle mm -hmm. idea. And that's kind of like you have a preconditioned lifestyle. And um, I think in the United States, like, everyone says there's the American dream and you can work harder. And, you know, if you're poor and you have this ability to, you know, become wealthier. Mm -hmm. And that's true for some people, but for most people, that just doesn't ever happen. Mm. Yeah, for a lot of people it just doesn't happen. Hmm. What else? What else? Think about people that are here in the United States that you see. Think, for example, some of the people that you see working on roads or stacking products up on Walmart or Kroger's, the grocery store. Would they be happy if you took them and put them in classroom setting biology or computer programming or would they feel overwhelmed and not happy and that's not what they want to do they might feel uncomfortable some of them people according to Mustafa Mond had their level so what's what's the difference then between a person finding their level their niche whether it's lower class manual labor to being a scientist and just, you know, being involved in creating inventions and things like that. What's the difference between that and what they're doing here? The, the people have appropriate genetic structure for those lower level jobs. They're raised and conditioned so that they don't want those things. They want to, the epsilons, for example, are conditioned so that they don't want to read when they're growing up. They're conditioned that they get shock treatments if they get near a book. They're happy. What's the difference between people being happy at their level in this world and people being happy in their level in the brave new world of Aldous Huxley? Those people slightly mentally retarded in that book. <coughs> the epsilons are slightly mentally retarded by the by the way that they're decanted, by the way that they're grown in in the test tubes, so to speak. So it's not like everybody below alpha is slightly mentally retarded. Everyone below alpha doesn't have quite the maximum capabilities. Okay. But even among the alphas. Do they have maximum capabilities? Mm -hmm. 
I mean, betas have lower abilities. They can still read and things like that. They have lower abilities than the alphas. It's the epsilons who have the lowest of the abilities. But even the alphas, what conditions are... Are they really all freewheeling thinkers? What about the alphas? Well, you see, like, um, that girl, Lenina, like... Yeah. Even even she is preconditioned to be like, wow, I'm glad I'm not a beta, um, mm-hmm. and say all those things. But I guess if I were a beta, I'd like being a beta. And if I were a beta, I'd like being a beta. Yeah, it's so. <clears throat> like everyone is like completely satisfied with where they are, and they don't want to go anywhere else. And so, like the alphas, it's like they're conditioned to be just kind of like elite like elite in the society but at the same time everyone in the society is kind of like obsessed with their identity Mm -hmm. but now they're obsessed with their identity that's correct but how how far can an alpha actually take it this idea of being able to be a free thinker now, is anybody in the society, like even Mustafa Mond, is he completely left um, uncontrolled? Or is he controlled well, by somebody? Well, he's the one who has all the books locked in the safe. Yeah, he has access to books, remember? Yeah. Um, he seems to know everything. He seems to have access. But what happens if, if he runs into somebody that can't be controlled? Don't they just send them to the island? Yeah, they send them away to a place like an island that's separated from. And what was the reason that John Savage was brought to civilization from the barbarous southwest? Why was he brought to the civilization? Why why did the Musafaman bring him and let him stay? What was the nature of that experiment? Do you remember what Mustafa was talking about? Why why didn't they just let him go back? Because Mustafa Man clearly recognized that John Savage was an independent thinker. He loved to read. Books were available to him. But what book did Savage read the most? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Memorized it. He memorized all of Shakespeare. But what about the... What was different between John Savage and the Alphas? In terms of free will. Well, I mean, John Savage was... What you just said, he was an independent thinker. He was able to think outside of the Brave New World Society because, I mean, he wasn't a part of that society first of all, so he wasn't constrained to those conditions. And he also, just kind of his entire makeup was different than everyone else's because he was born um, viviparously. He wasn't... He was born what? He he wasn't born through, like, the Bogdanovskification process. Oh yeah, that's right. He wasn't born... He He was born free in the sense of a random. What was his mother? Um, his mother wasn't... She was, a, she was part of the Brave New World, yeah. wasn't she? She yeah. had been conditioned. Yeah, she was part of the Brave New World. What level was she? 
doesn't she know? I thought she was a beta. Yeah, she was a beta. She was a beta. And what happened when she was brought back with John Savage? Was that? She overdosed on soma. She couldn't get enough of that soma. So let's have, let's bring that back. What happens then when she she wanted her mind to re she wanted to be she wanted to get away from the freedom of the independent thought, the very thing that John Savage sought after and wanted so much. So you have two things going on. We have a a person who was a beta preconditioned, brought into the wilderness left by accident and then having a child and then the child being raised as a wild seed and then you also have that wild seed free independent thinker going back into the brave new world civilization or going to the world for the first time but then the beta mother also going back returning you have an interesting experiment you have an experiment where a beta is allowed to go into the wild. Did she like it? She hated it. Freedom was not something she wanted. And you have a situation where she then goes back to civilization and overdosed herself on Soma, which is the drug that sedates one, puts you into a dreamland, removes all of the ideas of freedom, conditions the mind. And John Savage, when he came to the civilized world. He didn't like it at all. Remember Mustafa Man talking about Savage, that that was the reason why he was left to stay in, in, the, in the Brave New World? It was an experiment to see what would happen. First it was an experiment. It turned out to be an experiment. It was started out as an accident of what happens when a conditioned person, a beta, gets put in an unconditioned world, the wild world. And then what happens when the conditioned person returns to the civilized world and an unconditioned person gets placed in the civilized world? Is there an adaptation going on? And what do we see? The adaptations don't fit. They don't mix. So it seems that Aldous Huxley is saying that you are what you are based on how you start out. And John Savage was never able to adapt to the brave new world. Whatever happened to him in the end? He kills himself. Yeah. Kills himself. And what happens to his mom, the beta who finally returns? She dies too. Yeah, she died of too much stoma, um, <coughs> wanting extra control. John Savage wanting to break out. Her wanting to imprison herself harder and harder. So, it seems that the way you start out makes it predetermined how you're going to end up. And there doesn't seem to be that much independence to be able to reformulate your existence. You are what you are when you start off. And so if he takes embryos that are genetically appropriate and conditions them as they grow up, chemically, electrical stimulus, whatever, to be happy at their level. Are those people free? And really, let's get back to the question, is it, what's different between them and people that may seek out their level and find it and be happy here at a lower level 
its manual labor job, for example. Or, an upper level, parallel to an alpha situation, intellectual job. What's the difference between their world and our world? I don't think that the, in the Brave New World there's any sort of random variation, though, because they are all clones and they're all raised the same. There's not. There's never going to be, you know, like a Jimmy Carter who starts as a peanut farmer and becomes the president. Um, yeah, it's the randomness that's gone. That's it. So all they've really done is taken the randomness out. And what happens when a random mutation does occur and someone does want to become independent and to start reading books, for example? It's viewed as like a crime. It's like, it's like unacceptable. Yeah, it's considered a crime. And like with Bernard, you know, he was different and like everyone would just talk about it behind his back saying, oh, he must have had too much alcohol surrogate. Yeah, something was wrong with their conditioning. So they want to start thinking and then they have to be banished. So the question that we have is, what then is free will if we think in terms of people being happy. Does happiness get associated with free will? If someone is happy with their position in life, are they free? You know, one question you can ask is say, well, one of the differences is that the people in our world choose their position, they choose their level. Whereas in the brave new world, they don't choose their level, they're assigned a level genetically and through conditioning. But is that really correct? If you're born on the wrong side of the tracks and you're born in a poor area, you have certain types of schools. And you're within a group that may never excel or very rarely excel. It's really hard to get out of the projects what you're born in the projects. You have it. You have that, you know, theoretically it's possible and occasionally it does happen. But the large majority of people that are born in the projects end up staying in the projects. And they don't really have that capability to sort of move out. They don't really have the free choice. And you can say, well, what about the biological conditioning? Well, is that any different than someone who gets pregnant in the poor area, doesn't have proper prenatal education and goes through pregnancy eating junk food and perhaps getting drunk and having some drugs. And then the child is born with some challenges, physical challenges, physiological and mental challenges that the child then has to cope with for the rest of her or his life. Now that person had chemical conditioning, had embryonic conditioning. You know, is that really that much different than what you have in the brave new world? Whereas in our society, we don't have a controlling, overarching government that orchestrates it. But it still happens. You still have people condi conditioned through the types of food they eat, the educational levels, the culture that they have, um, 
the problems that they're associated with. You don't have genetic conditioning because you do have a situation where people genetically could get out if they had the ability to get a good education. Have you seen how many people have seen the new movie Freedom Riders? Oh, it's a great movie. You should see it. It's about a it's a true story about a white female very idealistic English teacher in Long Beach. It's playing in the movies now, in the theaters now, in Long Beach, California, who goes to a very, very difficult school setting, newly integrated, and the kids are just off the wall. Gangs, gang warfare, drugs, is just all over the board. But she she reaches she reaches those kids and the kids a whole bunch of them like the whole class unifies together graduates from high school and a whole bunch of them go on to college unheard of it was almost unheard of for the kids in that school in that class to graduate high school let alone they were just waiting waiting their time out till they eventually became 16 and could drop out and she so gripped them this young, idealistic, white female gripped them. She, she had two part-time jobs in the evening in order to pay for books and things because the school system didn't think that those kids were going to be worth anything. Why invest any money in them? Just wait till they drop out. <laughs> she got two part-time jobs to buy the books, to buy the notebooks for them. They ended up getting into college. And then she switched from her high school job. She followed them through. She got special permission to go each grade up so they didn't lose her as a teacher so she they kept with she kept with that group for their high school experience and then went on to I, I believe she went on to teach in a college a little bit to keep tracking the kids as they were going on to the college and some of those kids were the first kids in their family to have a high school degree let alone a college degree and in it's so easy for some people to think that people in lower areas of society would be genetically predispositioned to not achieve because the people simply don't don't do it and the always the question is how much is genetics and how much is is uh, social conditioning and then you have experiments like what happened with the freedom writers where a teacher makes a difference and it just blows the genetics idea right out of the water. It just completely destroys that. And what you have is a clear indication that, you know, it's a social conditioning issue. Well, who's the new president of Harvard? What gender is the new president of Harvard? Female. Yeah, Dr. Faust. She just uh, became president of Harvard. Actually, she's been appointed. I think she starts in July. But there was a great controversy with uh, President Summers, who was before her, the president before him, before her. Um, and what was 
what was his problem? What did he do that was so controversial? It had to do with gender and science. There was someone, yeah, there was, he said or claimed that um, males would be, were like genetically made to be better at math and science than the females were. You're close, not exactly, but you're close. He didn't claim that there were genetic differences between men and women to make men more predispositioned to excel in math and science. He raised the possibility, he raised the question of whether there could be genetic reasons why women tend to not go into the sciences and men tend to do go into the sciences. And that caused a huge uproar in Harvard. Caused him so much problems that he eventually had to resign, predominantly, primarily because of that issue. The faculty had votes against him. I mean, they, they just, the faculty at Harvard is a tough faculty you know, for presidents. And what they basically argued, the Harvard faculty, is that just to raise the idea that genetics could be involved in intelligence or in the field that one goes to, <coughs> or the, the ability to succeed in the field, is so damaging to the potentials to change the gender distributions in science and math and it's so untrue it's so untrue that you simply can't have those ideas raised on one hand the president was simply raising the question could there be genetic differences well the issue of whether there could be genetic differences one could then say well how is that any differences different to genetic predispositions to wanting to have maternal care for a mother wanting to have a different type of relationship to a child than a father would have to a child. Of course, that gets into that whole argument, and there would be some men who would say, no, that's conditioning as well. Men can also have a strong bonding uh, with, uh, with, with strong relationships with their children as well. It's that always is debate. It's that always that debate. How much is genetics and how much is conditioning? Well, with the Harvard situation, the very idea that genetics could be at the, at, the, at the root of this addresses the issue of free will. Because if you were to take that idea seriously, there could be a genetic predisposition to wanting to do math and science based on gender. And then would, that, would, would half of the human race then really have free will? Is there really then free will? to do math and science. And that's what caused that president so much trouble. And the Harvard faculty came out strongly to say that question cannot be even entertained because it's clearly a matter of conditioning, not a matter of genetics. And the president had to leave. So it's not that he was claiming the case, but he was raising that question. And the question itself was so, was so horrific. But now let's get back to the Freedom Riders. Here you have a clear case where people, where the rest of society basically said, these people are write-offs. 
and in large part they were talking genetic in the sense that these people are just not going to do it they're not going to be there and then this teacher came in and said no these people can do it they can make a difference and in fact she put that effort in and it made a difference they ended up going to college broke all predictions now let's get back to the idea of free will you can say that people might lack free will if there is a genetic predisposition to go one way or the other. And Aldous Huxley in The Brave New World clearly seems to be describing a society that took that element out, that element of free will out, because they really can't decide to want to do big things in the society if they're already been preconditioned genetically as well as through chemical treatments and electrical treatments to be epsilons. So that element of free will is really gone. But then does someone in the lower strata of society have free will if they don't have a teacher like that teacher in Long Beach that gripped the minds of her students and made them want to go into college. If she was not there, many of them would have died in the gang wars, ended up prostitutes on the street, died of AIDS, would have been consumed by drugs. Getting to be 18 years old would have been the big victory of life. Now, is there free will in a society in which the constraints are so great. And then the question is, do they really have free will if they are totally dependent on a, sa a savior, a teacher that will come in and change their way of thinking <coughs> and get them out of that situation? What is free will if we're so dependent on others. Now you see the scientists at Harvard, let me get back to this to the to the community to the faculty at Harvard. They essentially said the reason there are no women or not enough women in science and math is because of the social conditioning. And what we are then saying is the same thing is happening to women in a different way. But the same general phenomena is happening to women as were happening to the students in Long Beach. They were being conditioned to think that they wouldn't graduate from high school, that they would have to live in the gang wars, that they would have to die early. And women in our society are told that they must be like Britney Spears, cute, sexy little things that don't think. We worship Britney Spears. We put her on the tabloids. But we don't worship physicists. And when's the last time you actually saw a sexy role model who was solving mathematical problems and physical questions, you know, questions of physics? What happens in questions of physics? What kind of people, what's your image of someone who's really good in science? Classes. What's that? Big glasses. 
Thick glasses. Older. Older. Male. Male. Probably white. White. What else? Not a very good dresser. What's that? Not like very nice clothes or anything. Rumply clothes, perhaps. <coughs> what about cool and sexy? Not too much. What about a nerd? Dorky. What about Back to the Future? Remember the scientist in Back to the Future? The crazy guy? That sort of fits, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's kind of changing today if you think about it with the shows on TV. Like, you see Grey's Anatomy. Those people yeah, on that are pretty good looking. So. And then House. I mean, these people are good looking. They're good at science. Which one? House. Yeah. House? What's House? I don't know House. You don't know House? No, That's I like don't. the best one. What's that? It's a medical show about this guy who solves really cool medical mysteries. Ah, I see. And, and also Grey's Anatomy is about medical, right? Yeah. So we have sort of a society that does elevate doctors. Yeah, it's a big hit right now. But what about non-medical, big income-earning doctors? What about people besides those? What about people who solve physics problems? Yeah, you don't see a lot of that. You don't see a lot of that. There are TV shows about physics. (laughs) There is actually one, Samantha Carter in Stargate. Remember the the, the, the drop-dead knockout blonde who is like a, 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 a world resource in, as, in astrophysics, fighting, you know, various alien races? Yeah, Stargate. And, and, but she's very rare. That's very rare. The general, the general idea is that girls should be pretty, and not do science and math. So in a very real sense, the Harvard faculty is correct. Don't start talking genetics until you solve the cultural problems. And the Long Beach experiment is a classic case where the society at large was willing to write off all those kids. And then the social issue of just getting them out of that was just a matter of finding a teacher. But then, what actually is free will? That would mean that, technically, women in our society could become cool, sexy scientists who discover new areas of physics, astronomy, math applications, they're cutting edge. But they choose not to do this. Is it really free will? The kids in Long Beach that chose not to go to high school, finish high school and go to college, but rather to die in the gang wars, is it really a free choice? And when they actually end up do going to college, it's because a savior, a teacher that really cared about them, reached them. Was it really free? What does we mean by free choice? I think it's always free will within societal limits. And as far as that goes, I think the United States is probably the most free country. But, um, what was I going to say? I mean, it is possible to break out of the mold and to move up, but it's not probable because we don't all start out on the same level. It's a matter of fairness, not really a free will. And that's what you get. 
Hmm. We don't all start out at the same level. And in that sense, you really can't have a free competition. You might <clears throat> also make the argument that, like, someone who starts a little better off than someone else might seem or appear or feel like they have more choice just because they are available to more options than someone mm. who is lower. But then they end up wanting to become doctors or lawyers. Is it really free right. will? If they were all wanting to become doctors and lawyers, is it really an issue of free choice, free will? Even the doctors are being conditioned. Well, it's more of a societal expectation, I think, because <clears throat> everyone loves when kids say they want to be a doctor or a lawyer, but when someone's like, I think I want to be a writer, they're like, um, that's not really a career, you know? Like, mm. writing is good, like, once you're successful, but, like, starting out, like, no one praises that. Yeah. And certainly if I wanted to become a member of a gang, my family would not be so... Um, they wouldn't be so happy. So but happy isn't that, that a general characteristic of all families? My father, for example, wanted me, me to become a salesman for Xerox. <laughs> How'd that work out? Was that? How'd that work out? Uh, that didn't work out so well. I, mean, I just didn't want to... Was that? I said, are you selling on the side? Did I do it? Are you selling Xerox on the side? <laughs> no, I'm not selling Xerox. No, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be an intellectual from the very beginning. My father was a physical education teacher. Actually, he was a supervisor of uh, four high school physical education departments. Started as a football coach and PE teacher. And uh, my mother was an intellectual. She was a reporter. Ended up uh, writing many articles for the New York Times and so on. Um, worked for the Jersey Journal a long time. And I was intrigued by the intellectualism, the, the heady. My parents eventually got divorced. And then uh, when my mother's colleagues at work used to gather around our house and talk in their reporter parties. I was intrigued by the conversations that they had. They had really interesting conversations, talking about politics, talking about literature, talking about this and that and the other thing. And I was also influenced by my grandfather, who was a scientist. He worked for Union Carbide, originally Bakelite. He was the inventor of a slurry, one of the, I believe the first slurries, or one of the first slurries, that was used around oil wells. So when you pump, when you stick a pipe into the ground to get oil, well, the oil doesn't come out of the center of the pipe. It comes out of the center of the pipe and along the outside of the pipe where there's rocks and everything. So you have to force feed a slurry around the outside of the pipe that seal the pipe, the outside of the pipe, into the ground. It has to be liquid for a long time to push it down there, and then suddenly it has to congeal and be solid. And my grandfather was the inventor of the slurry that was originally used to, to do that. I thought that was intriguing, and I, for some reason I was always drawn to science, the science side of things. So I never really appreciated that aspect of my father, the anti-intellectualism of my father. And I really liked the intellectualism of my mother. So I had a contrast, you see. So in a sense, you could say I had an environment that fostered a choice 
because I had two opportunities. I could go one way or the other, anti-intellectualism or intellectualism. But in situations where people don't have a forced opportunity, what choices do they really have? They have to dig the choices out of their own brain if their environment doesn't offer those choices. For example, among people who have parents who are of different partisan identifications, one parent being a Republican and the other parent being a Democrat. Well, those children tend to be more independent in their political thinking. If you have both partisans, if you have both parents being Democrats or both parents being Republicans, the children tend to line up with both parents later on. Less independent of thinking. What then is free will? Is someone's partisanship free will? Now, we're going to return to this later. There's actually been a very path-breaking article in the leading journal of political science that indicates that being a Democrat or Republican is, and being liberal or conservative is a genetic predisposition. People are genetically predispositioned to be Democratic or Republican, and, this, and the evidence is very solid. Mm. They've traced uh, thousands of twins that were separated at birth and raised in different environments, and the genes matter. <laughs> The genes matter. You're, you're born a Republican or you're born a Democrat in, in, some, in some probabilistic sense. Very fascinating. We're going to cover that later on. Then what is free will? How much do we have free will? How much are we dependent on our choices, on the environment or on our genes in giving us some disposition to do something? If we really don't have that much free will, then what difference is it between us sort of confronting the environment however we find it and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World where they pre-design the environment? It's a real weird question. If you think about it, Aldous Huxley's not offering this view of society as a solution for us. What's he doing? Why is the reason he wrote this world this novel about the brave new world. Is he trying to give us a utopian that we should be heading towards? No. What's he doing? He's telling us what to avoid. He wants us to avoid what else? In a sense, yes, that's true, but what else? He points out things that he already sees in our society and exaggerates them. Yeah, that's what novels do. They exaggerate that one point. You know, there's a nice way to say exactly what you just said. Medical. He diagnoses. Mm -hmm. He accents that aspect of our society in a way of diagnosing us. His diagnostics of our society are very accurate. So he's not actually offering this as an as a alternative reality to our own. He's actually writing about this brave new world, accenting those aspects of our society that already exist. So what we're finding is Aldous Huxley's brave new world is already here in its own ways. In its own ways. It's already here. And he's raising the question about whether we really have free will. And if someone really has free will, if someone is a person who really deviates from the norm, what happens to them? Well, let's take a look. 
Socrates and Jesus. Let's look at those two. What did Jesus do? What essentially really did he do? He, what was his message? What was his message that was unusual for the day? Uh, that that the um, common people were just as good or, or even better than the, the rulers and the elite. And I might add one little thing to that. That's exactly correct. He, might, he also said that God is a happy God. Remember, the theology of the day was that God was an angry God. And he said God is a God that's driven by love. That was a radical idea back in those days. What happened to him? Well, he got he paid for good teaching with his life. Let's go now to Socrates. What did Socrates do? He um, endorsed and embraced thinking through, like, teaching kind of his apprentices and spreading the growth of like, like knowledge. But, but then he was also killed by Athens. Well, he, he, he died. He had to commit suicide, drinking hemlock tea. Yeah. He had to either that or be banished from, from, from Greece. There's the painting. But no, but, but, pardon me? There's the painting, The Death of Socrates. There's the what? The Death of Socrates? There's a painting called... Ah, the, the painting. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a question. What physically did he do, though? Why was he banished or... Uh, you know, told he had to kill himself. Why was he condemned to death? What did he do? What was his sin? Um, corrupting the youth. Corrupting the youth. How did he corrupt the youth? What? Phys where did he spend his day, or his days? Well, remember, it's the marketplace. And what did he do at the marketplace? He had a group of followers. He, he harangued people as they walked by and asked them questions. He, he grabbed people and said, what do you think about that? The, the idea of the Socratic method, he forced them to think. He forced them to question. Meaning they were very happy, as with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, not asking questions. The only thing Socrates did was raise questions and bring people to a point where they were confronting the nature of their reality around them. And people didn't like that. With Jesus, the same thing. Brought in a new idea, and people didn't like having to think differently. So what Aldous Huxley is saying in The Brave New World is that people are already sort of, you might say, automatons. They don't like to really question. Now, if this is true of Socrates' day and of Jesus' day, Aldous Huxley is, uh, Huxley is saying it's true today. And can we really say it's different for the upper strata of the intellectual society? Is it true that intellectuals are free of that problem? Scientists, for example, are they free of that problem? I don't think anybody has any more free will than the people in that book. 
I think we all just react to stimuluses according to our genetic makeup and preconditioning. Hmm. That's a strong statement. I think it's true, though. And according to people's expectations of us. And in this world, of course, there's mutations, but in that world, they get rid of the mutations. So that's the hmm. only difference. But even in our society, people who are radical are rejected or like written off a hmm. lot of the time. I mean, not always. Hmm. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, we have mutations, but we kind of get rid of them too. Yeah. That we do what? We, we get rid of them. We also. get rid of our mutations as well. I think the real difference is that in that world, it's a human contrived society and it's completely controlled by one person. What I really want to know is what happens if that one person dies. Well, I think Huxley would probably rephrase that, that there happens to be a person sort of in the central location as chief executive officer. But I think he would rephrase it to say that the society is controlled centrally. Yeah. But the one thing he would add probably... I hate to put words into his mouth, but it seems to me that he would add that the society is controlled centrally, but also with voluntary participation. That the people go along with it, eagerly. Yeah. One of the things that really bothers me about Brave New World is that you have Mustafa Mont, who's in charge, and has the books that he can read, and just the fact that he knows like what society has become and getting rid of like natural births and just like processing manufacturing people and like he knows what it what it, it could be like otherwise mm -hmm. but it, he leaves it the same way but at the same time like the book is written so that you find Mustafa Mond admirable in a way. Mm. So it's like, or at least I did, like I always end up liking him when I read the book, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but like I don't want to. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's always... It's really interesting, this yeah. idea of free will. You know, I have an article here. And this is from the New York Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2007. So it's recent. A little more than a month old. And it just goes to show that it's not just us talking about free will, but it's a big issue. Do we really have free will? What does it take to have free will? And it really raises the question, it may be that only some very few people in our society, very few, like Socrates, have free will. Only the ones who are capable of breaking out of the herd way of thinking independently have free will perhaps it's a question that we have to raise and that maybe the rest of the society depends on those people rattling our cages listen to this article this is by Dennis Overby it's a leading page front page of the section D D1 Tuesday January 2nd I was a free man until they brought the dessert menu around there was one of those molten chocolate cakes, and I was suddenly being dragged into a vortex swirling helplessly towards caloric doom sucked toward the edge of a black chocolate hole. Visions of my father's heart attack danced before my glazed eyes. My wife, Nancy, had a resigned look on her face. The outcome, 
endlessly replayed whenever we go out is never in doubt. Though I often cover my tracks by offering to split my dessert with the table, okay, I can imagine what you're thinking, there but for the grace of God. Having just lived through another New Year's Eve, many of you have just resolved to be better, wiser, stronger, and richer in the coming months and years. After all, we're free humans, not slaves, robots, or animals doomed to repeat the same boring mistakes over and over again. As William James wrote in 1890, the whole sting and excitement of life comes from our sense that in it things are really being decided from one moment to another and that it is not the dull rattling off of a chain that was forged innumerable ages ago. Get over it, Dr. James. Go get yourself fitted for a new chain mail vest. A bevy of experiments in recent years suggests that the conscious mind is like a monkey riding a tiger of subconscious decisions and actions in progress, frantically making up stories about being in control. As a result, physicists, neuroscientists, and computer scientists have joined the heirs of Plato and Aristotle in arguing about what free will is, whether we have it, and if not, why we ever thought we did in the first place. Is it an illusion? That's the question, said Michael Silberstein, a science philosopher at Elizabethtown College, at Elizabethtown College in Maryland. Another question he added is whether talking about this in public will fan culture wars. If people freak at evolution, he wrote in an email message, how much more will they freak if scientists and philosophers tell them they are nothing more than sophisticated meat machines? And is that conclusion now clearly warranted, or is it premature? Well, Daniel C. Dennett, a philosopher and cognitive scientist at Tufts University, who has written extensively about free will, said that when we consider whether free will is an illusion or reality, we are looking into an abyss. What seems to confront us is a plunge into nihilism and despair. Mark Hallett, a researcher with the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, said, Free will does exist, but it's a perception, not a power or a driving force. People experience free will, they have the sense that they are free. The more you scrutinize it, the more you realize you don't have it, he said. That is hardly a new thought. The German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, said, as Einstein paraphrased it, that a human can do very well, uh, a human can very well do what he wants, but cannot will what he wants. Einstein, among others, found that a comforting idea. This knowledge, this is a quote from Einstein, this knowledge of the non-freedom of the will protects me from losing my good humor and taking much too seriously myself and my fellow humans as acting and judging individuals, he said. How comforted or depressed this makes you might depend on what you mean by free will. The traditional definition called libertarian or deep free will it holds that humans are free moral agents whose actions are not predetermined. This school of thought, in effect, says in effect that the whole chain of cause and effect in the history of the universe stops dead in its tracks as you ponder the dessert menu. At that point, anything is possible. Whatever choice you make is unforced and could have been otherwise, but it is not random. You are responsible for any damage to your pocketbook and your arteries.
Now, I'd like to inject something here. Could we call that the John Wayne philosophy of free will? The guy who's out there in the Wild West, free and independent spirit, the classic concept of the American free spirit that's out there deciding which direction he's going to point his horse to ride off in. Isn't that sort of that ideology? It's a way of looking at it. So our understanding of free will may be culturally conditioned. It may be an American idea, in fact, of free will. We may indeed have free will, but it is highly likely that based on what we're reading with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and the rest of the stuff we've been talking about, that we really don't understand what that free will is. What we thought may have been free will may have been as uh, Arthur Schopenhauer said, an illusion. A human can very well do what he wants, but he cannot will what he wants. Maybe we don't really know what free maybe what we thought we was was what we thought was free will actually is something that's preconditioned. Then if we do have free will, we have to ask the question, what then could it be? Do we need to redefine free will? And then we may end up saying that very few of us actually have it. We may have to restrict which ones of us do have it. Do you see the value in reading something like science fiction? How many of the students that you're going to leave, right, leave, 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 when you leave this room and you're going to go interacting with your fellow students, how many of them are going to be saying, I got an orgo test, an organic chemistry test I got to work for, I got to do this, I got a, uh, you know, a chemistry test, a biology test I got to work for, I got this uh, pre-law course I got to get into. How many of them are going to be on that career path to business school, law school, medical school in a single-minded fashion? And then how many of them are completely independent of the conditioning that made them want to do that in the first place? There may be free will in this, but how many of those people are really exercising that free will? That's not saying they shouldn't become doctors or lawyers or business people, but how many of them really chose that by an act of free will? It's a question. It's just a question. When you go after, when you leave the class and you go out and interact with the students, Look at the people around you and ask yourself, how many of them are actually truly independent of the conditioning? It's a real interesting thing to do, real good exercise.